0: What we decided to do is just sing a couple songs, and I'm just gonna preach the rest of the time. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you got your Bibles, go with me to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, and uh, make sure you guys pick up a, a note paper. There should be one somewhere right around you. Um, it's, it might be a little confusing on that note paper. Um, there is, it kind of like it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because there's like a main point, like like three main points. And then we get to like another main point, and then like, a, like another main point. And that kind of stops. Um, that's on purpose because this sermon is going to be over two different weeks. Uh, so instead of preaching for two hours today, I'm going to preach for an hour today and an hour next week, okay? Actually, this week, uh, actually, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Um, it might be a little shorter uh, than what, I typically, what we typically take up, um, so, I, the reason I'm telling you, I want you to get your hopes up that Matt's making a change, okay? Um, we still have a lot of Bible to learn and very little time to learn it. So, um, just, it was where, I, I just, I needed to divide this over two weeks. And this was the best place that I could find uh, to kind of cut these two in half. Um, this is a really, really super important topic. Um, It's a topic that, not a topic, it's a Bible verse, it's a doctrine that I think in churches that we don't ever talk about, I think because somehow maybe we're afraid, because it is a little difficult to deal with, it's a little difficult to understand. I think it's only difficult largely because we have such a such a man centered gospel and as we've been talking this whole series we're talking about a God centered gospel, uh, which really only makes sense and, and nobody would admit we have a man centered gospel, but the reality is is that many churches, many many people, even people in Renovation Church have a man centered gospel. It's 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 just it's a disease. Because we want man at the center. We want man to get credit. We want all of that. And the fact is, that's not where we're at. So this, what we're going to talk about today, is super important. Um, we typically call this part of our life of a believer. Wow. They just all decide to cry at once. Phew. Um, yeah, so that's all right. If, if it don't distract you all, I'm just going to call it the elephant in the room, and then we'll move on, okay? Uh, It'll distract me more than it will the you guys. Um, so here's the deal. We typically call this part of our salvation experience. We call this, typically call this sanctification, okay? Paul calls this working out our salvation. Now, we don't like that term because it makes us think of works, it, we don't like that because we're afraid that somehow we may actually have to do something in our salvation. Um, it, it, it scares us. And I, I just want to set you at ease right now. We're not saved by works, but works are a part of our salvation. We are not saved by works, but works are a part of our salvation. All right? Now, for some people, that already still makes you uneasy, okay? But we're going to take a look at what Paul says. Now, again, we, there's nothing we can do to get ourselves to heaven. It is only by the grace of God through faith. We've talked about this already through this whole gospel series, but works are a necessary part of our salvation. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see someone saved, and it's an intellectual acknowledgment of facts, whereby they simply choose to go to heaven rather than hell, and there is no transformation that takes place in their lives. That is not biblically possible. The person who th- no transformation takes place, there is no heaven for them. Period. Period. So, with that said, very, 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 very quick review here um, Going back to the beginning of the gospel series, we talked about how the gospel is about a person. It's not about a program, it's not about a process, it's not about a prayer, it's about a person. It's about our relationship with a person whose name is Jesus Christ. Then we talked about this person. When he was in front of a group of believers, or sorry, a group of unbelievers, and they were considering whether or not to be his followers, he gave an invitation to them. And his invitation to them wasn't, hey, come pray this prayer. It wasn't, hey, would you like to join us? You know, we're on this little mission here. We're trying to reach the world, you know. Like, that wasn't Jesus' uh, call of them to follow him. His call was this. You have to hate your mother, father, brother, sister in order to be a disciple of mine. He says, you, you can't even be a disciple of mine unless you hate them. Now, obviously, we're supposed to love our families, right? I mean, so this is not a contradiction, but it's simply this very, very quickly. Jesus is saying that you have to have a superior love for me. And the Bible actually says that all of our affections, it says love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That doesn't mean with most of your heart and then give the rest of it to everybody else. No, that means all of your heart. So all of our affections belong to God. And then we love everybody else out of our love from God. So we have a superior love, an exclusive loyalty to God. Uh, meaning that when he says to carry your cross in that same passage when he, this, again this is his if you want to be a disciple of mine this is the requirements so you have to hate your mother, have a, a superior love for me you have to have an exclusive loyalty and what he was saying in that passage was you have to carry your cross and when we think of carrying cross we think of well read my bible and maybe getting insulted every once in a while that's what we think of that's not what Jesus meant Jesus meant you have to die to yourself, die to your dreams, because think about a person that's on their way to, to being crucified on a cross. They, there is no hope for tomorrow. There is no dreams for tomorrow. There, there is no desires. There, there is no, what am I going to do for, my, for this tomorrow? It is, they are a dead man walking with no pride whatsoever on their way to a crucifixion. And Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, that's you. You have to die to yourself, die to your desires. And that's why Paul says, For I'm crucified with Christ no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. We are dead to ourselves. We spiritually, we are most alive in Christ when we are most dead to ourselves. Because then Christ is most alive inside of us. We are a dead man walking. And that's when we're spiritually living. So exclusive loyalty also says in that same passage that... um, we have to have total loss. Because this is just, this is, like, when we think of Christianity, we think of, well, I give my church and I give some money and, and I serve a little bit. Like, that's when we think of, we think of it, that's what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, if you want me to be my disciple, you have to be willing to lose it all. And we live in a land of plenty where we, where we very, uh, last night, Sarah and I, our electric went out. And uh, we're sitting there kind of bumming around because I'm finishing up a project, a house project that requires electricity. Uh, and, uh, Everything was working except for this light bulb. I could not get the hallway light to come on. In. And I, I'm like, maybe I switched up some stuff. So, anyways, long story short, it ended up being the bulb had blown. So, thank God. Uh, so, I thought like a wire because it was a three way switch. Some of you know what that means. Uh, so, anyways, like, we get to the end of the project, and, 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 and I run to Lowe's to get a new bulb, and I come back, and the, and the electric's off. It was what's funny is I got to, got to Home Depot, sorry. And the guy goes, Why are you buying a light bulb? The electric's going to go off. And I'm like, Ha ha, funny. And I go down my road, and the lights are all off on my whole road. I'm going, Dad, gone. Uh, so I get in, and, and my wife, we, we left. Uh, she talked me into going uh, out to eat. We hadn't eaten dinner yet. And this was 10 o'clock at night. We went to BW3s. We ate dinner. We came back, and, and like, we, were literally, like, we were proud. I don't know if I prayed so hard in my life, the electric would just be back on. Like, you got to understand, the project I was doing, I was up in the attic with insulation and all that stuff and fiberglass in my bed. I just wanted to take a shower so I can go to bed. And we're on a well. And uh, so, well pump doesn't work, the electric's off. So, uh, anyways, we just walked down that, coming back down that road, just praying that our electric would be back on. And Sarah looks at me and says, we are so spoiled. We are so spoiled. And, you know, it really hit because I'm like, are we willing to have total loss for Christ? What if he told one of you or myself to go to some foreign country where there is no running water and there is no electricity and you're called there to take the gospel to those people? Would you do it? Would I do it? We like to think we would. But Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to have total loss. So then there comes this, this point then where we decide to follow Jesus. And, and we talked about what that looks like. And we talked about specifically a God-centered view of what that looks like. We begin to follow Jesus and what has to happen. And there was four things, and we spread that over two weeks. And those were very quickly, Jesus or God reveals our need. We have to, know, we have to realize there's a need for something. I mean, many of us go to people with, that, that we go to work with, they don't see a need for Jesus, and that's the problem. Well, I'm doing good the way I am. Well, that's right. God has to reveal a need to them, and God changes our hearts. We saw this all in the passage in Nicodemus, John chapter 1. God enables our belief, and God transforms our lives. These are all necessary components of what Jesus calls being born again in John chapter 1. Necessary components. God reveals our need. And God uh, changes our hearts, God enables our belief, transforms our lives. So what happens then is, it's about a person, Jesus gives us call, and then we're born again, and then begins this process that Paul calls working out our salvation. So when we think of salvation, I man, I grew up thinking this way too, and we think of salvation, we think of just the born again process. Like, and even that, we just think about faith think about putting our faith in Jesus that's when we think of salvation but salvation is that whole born again process revealing need and changing heart and then it also is all the way to the point where we are finally glorified or what we call glorification that's when we meet Jesus in heaven that whole process biblically is considered the salvation process so the here's the deal in order to understand it's going to take us just a few more moments to get to this philippians text because i want to kind of summarize for us three main like foundational components or three facets of salvation that we need to understand the kind of a total picture of salvation kind of what i've just done but a little bit more detail um, and and what it takes, or the the salvation process, so that we know right where we're sitting at when we talk about this cha- this passage in Philippians chapter two. The first thing, the first foundational component of salvation, as the total picture of salvation as Scripture describes, is number one: salvation involves a change. Salvation involves a change. This is that born-again process that we talked about for the past two weeks with the passage of Nicodemus. When Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. This is that process. This salvation involves a change. A couple things to point out is that this is a past event, something that happened at a point in time. Okay, This is not a process. This is not... Something that took a while to have. This is something that happened at a point in time. There was a point in time where you were either born again or there's never been a point in time where you were born again. This is something that happened to you. Something that happened to you. It's God who reveals your need. God who changes your heart. God who enables your faith and God who transforms your lives. This is the point this is crucial. This is the point where God declares you righteous before Him. This is the point where God declares you righteous before Him. We, we also call it justification. So, the question then for us again is have, have you been born again? Did you realize a need? You know, basically, did God enable, did God reveal a need? Uh, have you been born again? Um, you can look at this later, Ephesians 2 verse 5, Ephesians 2, 8, um, this is something that has to be done, or something that has to be done, and it happens to you. Again, the Bible refers to it as justification. Um, in Romans 3 and in Romans 5, you know, we have been justified through faith. Been justified through faith. Um, when we are born again, God justifies us slash declares us righteous before him. That's what happens when this change happens. Now Something I want us to realize, because I haven't touched on this over the past few weeks, is that this born again process, circumstantially, is going to look different across the board, across the room. There's going to be components that are exactly the same, but there's components that are different. The components real quickly that are the same is the gospel is the same. It's the same message. It's the same person, the same sacrifice, the same cross. Uh, You know, all the things we talked about last week, revealing your need and transforming your life, that's all the same. But just imagine. Imagine the person who, who grew up in the church and at 12 years of age realizes or 13 or 10, whatever, realizes, I have a need. I have a need for a Savior. And God changes his heart and puts his faith and turns from his sin and puts his faith in Jesus. And God transforms his life. Now, think about that, and think about the person who lives for 40 years of their lives addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs, and one day realizes, and God shows him, someone proclaims the gospel to him, or he knew it maybe even from a childhood, and and God changes his heart, and and reveals his need, and he puts his faith in Jesus, and... and, uh, I mean, those circumstances look quite, quite different. His, his life after is, is going to be this radical, visible change that probably we, a lot of us would see. And I'm not saying he would never struggle with anything, but, but these two situations are very different. So we have to understand when it comes to proclaiming the gospel and, and seeing people get saved, that circumstantially those situations are going to look different. But it's still motivated by the same gospel, the same, the same content, and it's still the gospel has to be proclaimed to them, guys. The Bible says, how should they hear if, if no one tells them? So, justification is at a point in time and something that happened in the past. If you're a believer, this part of salvation happened at a point in time. The second thing about salvation is this. Number two is that salvation involves a journey. Salvation involves a journey. And we typically, again, we typically call this part of salvation. We call it sanctification, and and that is a it's a correct term. Sanctification is a correct term. Uh, I'm not saying like we should call it this, but my point was that we're afraid to call this part of the salvation process because we just don't want to deal with what Paul says about works in our salvation. So it's easier just to call it sanctification and just just gloss right over this text uh, in Philippians chapter two. Um, But salvation involves a journey. There's no way around this. It's very, very clearly seen in Scripture that salvation involves a journey. But if we stop at the change, we miss biblical salvation. If we just classify the initial change as salvation, then we miss what biblical salvation looks like. Because this change leads to a journey at the change we are declared righteous before God and that begins a journey by which we are made righteous that's the key see there's the point in salvation where we are declared righteous we are justified before God but then sanctification sanctification is where we are being made righteous we are being conformed into the image of Christ that's what so we are declared righteous and then we are being made righteous as we continue down this journey until the point of glorification, which that process is finished. But we don't see that on this side of eternity. God is conforming us to his image. You can look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 later, if you want to mark that down, 2 Corinthians 3.18, how we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And the image, being transformed into the image of Christ. This is this is the process of being Saved in the process of being saved. Now now hear me clearly. If if the change took place, if the change took place, what we typically, we typically think of salvation, if that happened, you are saved, you will be in heaven. But it necessitates a process and necessitates what we're talking about today. Okay? So I'll make sure that's clear. I don't want us getting off kilter here because we think Matt's teaching you have to do good works to get to heaven. That's not what we're talking about here. But works are necessary. Okay? And I know still, know still some of you are going, how is that possible? He's contradicting himself. We'll get there. So, this is the means by which we are being made holy in the sight of God. This is where we are being made righteous. This doesn't happen automatically. How many of you have been perfect since the day you got saved? Anybody? I put my hand down. Anybody? All right. How many of you would say... Well, never mind, I'm not going to ask that question. It's probably not a good question. I was going to say, how many of you think you're a better person today uh, than you were? And I maybe visibly i am a better person than I was, but I think I realize my sin more deeply now. Okay. This doesn't happen even fully in this lifetime. Okay? This, this sanctification process. But, again, I, I want to kind of throw that word aside for a moment for the rest of the service. And we're just going to talk about working out our salvation. We're going to replace it with that for right now. Number three is this. So, so number one is salvation involves a change. Salvation involves a journey. And then salvation involves a destination. Salvation involves a destination. If you've read much of Paul's writings, how, how many times does he, does he talk about looking forward to the prize? I run the race. You know, I'm looking forward to the prize. He's talking about salvation, being in the presence of God. Uh, Salvation as a future prize. And um, you can take a look at 1 Corinthians 9 and Philippians 3. And Paul talks about running after the goal of his salvation or the prize of his salvation. Um, you know we are to be. We will be at that point, guys. This is so awesome. I mean, and, and if you're a believer, like this should twist your heart just a little bit, guys. But it's at that point when we will be reconciled to God, be in the being in the presence of God. Like we're reconciled to God in our salvation, but it's at that moment when we will be in the presence of God. <laughs> be in the presence of God. No more pain, no more sickness. The new will come. And glorification is the completion of our salvation. Um, in Romans thirteen eleven, in Romans thirteen eleven, our salvation. Paul talks about how our salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first believed. It's nearer now. What's he talking? He's not talking about the return of Christ. He's talking about this salvation process, that we are nearer to that now than we were then. If you are a follower of Jesus, that's a necessity. That's not an option. It's not an option. You are closer to that goal than you were when you first believed. Uh, again, it doesn't mean that we're still trying to earn our salvation it means that the future and the glorification, the, the culmination of our salvation, so that's finished, that when it's finished is closer now. It's still to come, but it's closer now than it was when we first believed. So here's the deal we have to understand all three of these facets of salvation. These are all three parts of salvation. And, uh, and the question is where are you on that spectrum? So it's either one just happened and you just began number two. And I don't think any of you woke up and met Jesus today on the other side of heaven because I'm still looking at y'all. So none of us are in three. Um, But all of us hopefully are in two where we're in this journey. Um, But, um, you know, maybe, maybe you've not been born again. Maybe when you look at this and you go... Yeah, I thought that was true in my life. I thought, I thought that I accepted Jesus. or I, I thought I prayed a prayer. And it's like, Jesus says we got to be born again. A transformation has to take place. Now, for each of us, that transformation is going to look a little bit different. You know, for some of us, it's going to be a radical change. But there is a transformation that takes place. You go from loving darkness to desiring and loving that which is light. That's a necessity. That doesn't mean you're going to do that to its fullest extent. It's got to start somewhere. But the Bible talks about us loving only what is dark. Loving what is dark. We desire the dark and have no desire whatsoever for the light. And when we get saved, if you've been born again, then your transformation is you begin. That's the key word. You begin to love that which is good. It doesn't mean you love it fully, but you begin to love that which is good that which Christ would have for you. Um, Maybe you consider yourself religious, very religious person, and even for you the question is, have you been born again? Jesus was saying this to an incredibly religious person in in John chapter 1 when he was talking to Nicodemus, I'm sorry, John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. Very religious person, and he said he had not been born again. Um, if you have been born again and you're in this process again, let me remind us that there is a coming of day when we will see our savior. Um, I think that means more to me now than it ever has in my life. And I still don't have no clue what it means fully. And I won't until I get there. We will be reconciled to God in his fullness forever. Um, if you're not been born again, let me remind you of the urgency of your salvation. You don't know what today holds, you don't know what tomorrow holds. And you need a savior. So it's important to understand. All these facets of salvation, in a, as we approach Philippians two, because I want you to make sure you understand which part of this salvation process, uh, which part of salvation, which facet Paul is referring to here in Philippians two. Um, Philippians two is not talking about the point of salvation; it's talking about the process of salvation. Here's the context. Leading up in chapter 2, particularly chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and we're going to read just, just verses 12 and 13. But in 5 through 11, Paul basically addresses believers who are struggling in their relationships with one another. Um, basically, they've become very selfish in their relationships. They've become very hostile towards each other. And, and then in verses 5 through 11, that's, that's leading up to verses 5 through 11, Paul paints this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, a picture of him in his humility, a picture of him in his exaltation and who he is, who he was. And right after this is where we get to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12. Why don't you follow along with me chapter 2, verses 12. We're just going to read two verses, and we're going to camp out there the rest of the time. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this, is guys, this is a difficult passage to understand. What, what is Paul talking about? With a man-centered gospel this turns into a works-based salvation because what are we doing what are we doing as a part of our salvation and obviously paul in this passage we're going to see this this is not a man-centered gospel. this is a god-centered gospel what god is doing even in this part of salvation so basically go back to that verse You can really insert a continue to work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is really, what he's doing here is he's finishing up a thought that he began back in chapter 1. If you just look back at chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, he's speaking to people who know the gospel. He is saying that your life needs to be a reflection of the gospel. And that's what he's saying in 120. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let it be a reflection. Is your life a reflection of this gospel? Not simply, I do good things. I love my church, I don't drink beer, you know, I don't get drunk, or whatever. It's, it's more than that. Saying, is your life, does your life show, okay, this is key, does your life show the effects of the indwelling of the Spirit? When someone looks at their life, at your life, when you reflect on your life, can you see the Spirit at work in your life, changing you, molding you, growing you? convicting you of sin, not feeling guilty. Guilt and conviction are two very different things. Everybody can feel guilt, but only those indwelt by the Spirit can feel conviction. Does the Holy Spirit speak to your heart of your sin and speak to your heart of your salvation? Now, can you see the effects of the indwelling of the Spirit in your life? Your life is how this gospel is worked out day day after day after day so here's the deal based on this we're going to look at we're going to look at three foundational truths about salvation that are based out of this passage. We're not going to get to all three of these. As a matter of fact, we're only going to get to one really, and we're going to touch on the second one for just a moment, and we're going to finish up two and go on to number three next week. So we're just going to look at number one. What is a foundational truth about salvation? Now, remember, this part, what Paul's talking about here in Philippians, is this process they are talking about the process. We're not talking about the point that you were saved. You were sealed in the Spirit. You were guaranteed. Again, that's all guaranteed because of Christ and because of the Holy Spirit and because of God's work. Not guaranteed because of anything good that we do or did do or will do. But we're talking about this process. So out of this verse, what are the three things that we learn from this verse that helps us understand? There's three truths, foundational truths about salvation, particularly the process. Um. The first one is this, that the grace of God undergirds every facet of salvation. The grace of God undergirds every facet of salvation. Again, this is a God-centered gospel. Not a man-centered gospel, a God-centered gospel. Just a reminder, and you know, I know I've said this a hundred times, but last, the last two weeks we looked at this process of being born again and we talked about how that's God who changes our hearts and God who reveals our need and God who enables our faith and God who transforms our lives and he does all of this it's his work it's the grace of God at the wor- it's the grace of God at work at the point we were saved and it's also the grace of God at the work in which we are being saved as we are working out our salvation you know, it, says, it sounds like this passage, like just at first reading, it sounds like this passage is saying it's about what we do. It's about us working out our salvation. Like it sounds like that. But let's go back and listen and look. Here's key. Again, we went through this in, in, in Scripture for Dummies and, and how to interpret our Bibles. And and uh, and look at the link in this passage. He says, Therefore, my beloved, back to verse 12, as, as you have always... Uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for, literally, because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out your salvation because or for it is God who who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Literally meaning because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The only way you can work out your salvation, guys hear me clearly, the only way you can work out your salvation is if God is working in you. If God is working in you. So who is the actor, just like at the point that you were saved? Who is the the main actor in that point? It's God. The same thing in this, the same process, the the journey or the, the process of us being saved. The actor is God. The grace of God undergirds the whole thing. Now here's what I want to do. I want to dive into just a little bit more deeply. What does he mean? What, what do I mean when, when we talk about this grace of God? So Paul, when he says that it's God who works in you both to will and to work, it's the grace of God that's working in us. To bring about this change or bring about this process, this this process in which we are literally... I mean, he's saying, work out your salvation. Well, I'm not talking about just cute semantics and sanctification versus work out... Your, he's saying to work out your salvation. So, yes, we are saved. We are sealed back at this point. But then we're saved or sealed to begin a process of our salvation. Now, we are guaranteed... That that process will be finished, not because of what we do, but because of God who works in us. And that's what he's saying here. You're this, you're, you're, you've got saved and you're beginning this process and, and working this out. And you're working this out because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when we think about this grace, the grace of God working in us to bring about this change in this process, working out our salvation, we'll think about this on three different levels. First one is this, grace is our message from cover to cover. Grace is our message from cover to cover. You can't read the Bible long without seeing the work of God's grace. We need the gospel to know Christ. See, the problem is we have a tendency to leave the gospel, I and mean, we think of the gospel and the grace and mercy and work of God on the cross and, and His salvation and Jesus. We tend to leave that back at the point where we know Christ, and then what, this, is what, this is what happens. We think of the gospel back here. We need that to be saved, and then we go on living life thinking, well, I've got to do this with my Christian life, and I've got to figure out how to do this, and... and Guys, I've been saved, you know we think this, I've been saved by the gospel and now I've got to go on and figure out these bigger and better things, how to pray, how to read my Bible. Guys, the fact is this, we need the gospel to know Christ and we need the gospel, the grace of God to grow in Christ. The gospel is the mean by which we were saved and the gospel is the mean by which we are being saved. It's part of this process. It's what Paul just said in Philippians Chapter 2. A writer once said, I love this, he says, The gospel isn't one class among many that you will attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Because we, we think about the gospel when we think about getting saved. think about proclaiming the gospel so people can get saved. Guys, we need the gospel just as much now as we did the day we got saved. We have this mentality that we move on from the gospel after the point that we meet Jesus, and the reality is our souls, sanctified by Christ, need to feed on the gospel day after day after day after day. Guys, if your soul does not crave the gospel and crave Jesus then there's an eternally bad wicked problem so there's been times in my life where it becomes centered around me and you know and my need for the gospel begins to subside and then God will bring me back around so I'm not saying that, that you, you're not saved unless you just just want to sit and pray all day. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, is there a work, is the effects of the Spirit working in your life, and the, important, the one of the biggest effects of the Spirit working in your life is going to be a desire and a hunger for the gospel. I mean, do, do you long for Jesus? Like, seriously? I, I grew up in church. We talked about Jesus every once in a while, you know. It's cool. Not like, do you love? Do you long for Jesus? I'm not saying do you long for the day where you're meeting Him. That too. I'm like, do you long for Him to be in control of your life? For Him to just express His love toward you? Like, do you long? Do you long for that? Um, you know, I'm talking to my wife through this series, and she's like. Man, I just I just so much more in love with Jesus. Talking about this gospel and, and and we talked about that and and, I, and I'm like it's because our souls were created saved to crave the gospel. Our souls were creative, created and then we went the wrong direction and then they're saved to crave The gospel. Because if you ever get over the gospel, if it's ever kind of like old hat, then you were probably never saved in the first place. The gospel is the foundation for every dimension of our lives. And we need the gospel to know Christ. We need the gospel to grow in Christ. Guys, the gospel or grace is our message from cover to cover. Number two, grace is our master. Grace is our master. Romans 6, by his grace, we are free from the penalty of sin. Read Romans 6. By his grace, we are free from the penalty of sin. Because we don't have to fear death any longer. That is the penalty of sin, is an eternal death and damnation apart from God. And we do not have to, uh, we are free, by his grace, we are free from the penalty of sin. You know, we talked about this, about someone who prays a prayer, but no transformation takes place. Are they saved? And the answer is biblically, it has to be a no. I know we we want to, well, they're just trying to still figure it out and blah, blah, blah. Or they prayed the prayer and they just haven't made Jesus Lord of their life. That's not even scriptural. It's not possible. There is a transformation. It, It may be very, very little, but there is a transformation that takes place. Again, it's because it's what God does. Why would God take residence in someone's heart to have no effect on them? Think about it. By his grace, we are free from the penalty of sin. And by his grace, we are free from the power of sin. Romans 6. Guys, in Romans 6, we died to sin. If you have been born again, guys, listen. If you have been born again, you are dead to sin. Sin has no power over you any longer. We don't have to live in the guilt of our sin. Romans 8 talks about how there is no condemnation for sin. And God does not count your sin against you anymore. Guys, this is grace. This is grace. And you say, but, but I still struggle with sin. Well, yeah, so did Paul. Paul said this in Romans 7. You know, I do what I don't want to do, and I do what I do, and I don't want to do, and blah, 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 yeah, blah, blah, blah. He just goes on. He's struggling with the sin. And, and he says that who will rescue me from this body? His grace is something that saves and empowers us now. We can't leave the gospel back at the beginning. You need its grace now. You need its grace now. The gospel is huge for us today. I think this is why in a lot of, a lot of churches, a lot of community of believers, if, that they, they go on and they start out, and even this is, this is a warning for us, we can start out so engaged in the gospel. And then as we get into a habit of doing church and living church and all this, that we can kind of leave the gospel back here. And guys, when we leave the gospel back here, we leave the power of the gospel back here. That's why a lot of you guys who are believers started out with, man, you're just on fire for Jesus and, and things are going great. And, and what happens is you begin to leave the gospel behind you. And it becomes, what can I do? How can I make these changes? How much more do I need to read my Bible in order to experience the power of God in my life? How, how many more times a day do I need to pray in order to experience the power of God in my life? And I'm sure all of us need to read our Bible more and we need to pray more. But what we need most is the gospel to not be left behind, to be right with us in every day of our lives. That's what we need. We need Jesus. So Grace is our message from cover to cover. Grace is our master. The third thing is this is grace is our motivation. Grace is our motivation. I have to admit before we run down this line i in studying this and studying this passage i I made a comment in a bible study and i've I've probably made this from the stage and and I said, you know kind of my view of serving God and giving back to God is that I just owe him so much and and uh, i'm just trying to repay him a debt that I could never repay him. And and I stand before you very corrected as I studied this passage this past week and and studied this. um, That should never, ever be our motivation for what we do for God. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So this is huge. Grace is our motivation. and Philippians 2.13, it's the God who works in you. For God works in you. Now, I want you to be careful. I want you guys to follow me through this because if just a slight twist can cause misunderstanding as we, as we work through this. Um, I'm not saying that Scripture is teaching that gratitude is bad. But gratitude towards God should never be our motivation for our obedience to God. I want to talk about that, so just hang with me. But gratitude should never be our Obedience, or our reason, our motivation—grace alone is our motivation. But again, again, real quickly, uh, gratitude is good. I mean, gratitude, you got, guys, thankful for the cross, thankful to God for leading us, for thankful for God for changing our lives, and all those—that's all good. We we should have a heart of gratitude. But gratitude as a, as a means of motivation in this process of earning our sal- or not earning our salvation—sorry, of working out our salvation. Um, in this process, grace is our only motivation. I want you to think about this. Think about how gratitude can become motivation for obedience and therefore become a bad thing. So let's think about this. If someone does something very nice for you, like someone, you know, whatever it is, uh, does something very nice for you, feel gratitude toward them, and how is this most often expressed? well, you know, I, I need to do something for them, right? I mean, this is not bad, okay? This is good. Like, when someone does something nice for you, you should want to do something good in return, okay? That's okay. But, so someone does something, you kind of feel what? We, we call this a, a debt of gratitude. Like, you owe them a debt of gratitude. Now, I have to say this. For us in this generation, like, we are terrible at debt of gratitude. People will do things for us all the time, and we don't even think about the fact that we should try to repay them. All right? So just a little side punch, okay, for, for, particularly for my generation. All right. A debt of gratitude. We should feel that debt of gratitude. Okay? If you treat me, you know, to a really nice meal, you know, I, I need, like, I feel like, I, I mean, I need to take you back out or... Uh, you know, I'm not able to do all that you did for me, but hey, at least I can give back a little bit, and so we owe them a debt of gratitude. So let's look how this pervades, though, our like, contemporary Christian model of thinking and, and and stuff, and and here's how we talk. Look at all that God did for you, and now how much more are you going to do for him? You ever heard that preached? Well, look what God did for you, now how much are you going to do for him, and uh, look at how much Jesus gave for you, and now how much are you going to give for Him? And we begin to think, look at all that God did for me in bringing me salvation, Jesus on the cross. Now, what can I do for Him now? And you're thinking, well, what's so wrong? What's so wrong with that? Um, at this point, we're beginning to think that all we in Christ- all we're doing in Christianity is just repaying Him because we owe a debt of gratitude. The reality. Guys, the reality is this. As soon as you pay one thing toward a debt of gratitude to God, you undercut the very foundation of grace in the first place. It's grace because you can't pay it back. Grace is something you can't pay back. You can't pay back. Back God. Here's where this leads to. It leads to this this sick religious lifestyle where we begin to think that our church attendance, our prayer, Bible reading are somehow paying God back for all that He has done for us. Anybody slipped into that mindset? That somehow, you know, my my giving to the church, my time is somehow paying God back. The reality is, guys, the reality is this. We are not in debt to God. We are not in debt to God. I would even go so far to say this, that you don't owe God anything. Guys, it's not that God hasn't given us all these things, He hasn't given us life, Has given us Himself. The beauty of Christianity is is not that He did all these things for us then, and so now what can we do for Him? The reality is this, is that God has not stopped giving to you. It wasn't God gave you the gospel so that you could then go do all these things for him. He gave you the gospel, he gives you today, he gives you tomorrow, he gives you the grace for the next day and the grace and everything you need for the rest of your life. He hasn't stopped giving to you. Here's the crux. We think, well, God did all this for me on the cross, so I can live for him now. The reality is you can't live for him now unless he keeps giving to you. That's the reality. It's not he did this so that now you can live for him. It's he did this and he keeps working in you so that you can keep living for him. There is no he did that so that you can now do all this. He, he did that and you do do all this, but he did that and he keeps working in you so that you can keep working out your salvation. That was great timing. Awesome. Sweet. You know, someday if we ever build a building... There's like some certain things. Like I'm gonna have a button, just push or (laughs) wha? Guys, um, guys, that is the gospel at work in saving us. It's working through us, Um, guys. You will never be able to pay one thing back to God because His grace is what saved you and His grace is what saves you now. Guys, guys, seriously, who are we to think that we have anything to offer God anyways? Um, The truth is, if you've been a believer for 75 years, you're just as desperately in need of grace today as you did 75 years ago. Guys, God is not a businessman looking to make a deal with us. He doesn't go, well, I'm going to save you now so that I can get X amount of years of work out of you. God does not do that. Because we don't have anything to offer him anyways. The stuff that we give that that works is just him working through us. Um. We are not in debt to God. Anything good we do comes from God anyways. Our motivation is not that we have a debt to God. It is grace is what motivates us. It's the work of God. His grace and the work of God through us that motivates us. Um, it's this grace that motivates us, pushes us, compels us. Guys, here's you can write this down. I love this. We we are not in debt to God. We are indwelt by God. We are not in debt to God. We are indwelt by God. And it's that indwelling, it's that active grace by His indwelling in us, whereby we work out our salvation. It says grace that lives in us. We can never relegate salvation to attempts to earn the favor of God or pay back a debt. This undercuts the very foundation of the gospel. We are indwelt by God, and his grace undergirds every facet of our salvation. No, so here's the it's at this point, it's at this point in this talk where some of us begin to go, well, what do I do then if it's God who works in me? If, if that's the deal, what, what do I do? And many people, this is where it's easy for us at this point to go, well, I'm just going to let go then and let God. Well, if it's God who's working in me, then I'm just going to take the hands off and and I'm just going to let it go. And we begin to get this passive idea of Christianity, which is not the gospel either. This leads us to the second truth. The second truth. So just in quick review, we... Talked about grace. Grace of God undergirds. This is one of the key truths that we see in this passage. That's where for God works in you. This is the grace of God undergirds every facet of salvation. The second thing we learn in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, is that faith is the God-ordained link between his work and our work in salvation. Faith is the link... Between his work and our work. Here is where the work part of salvation comes in. Now, again, let me remind you, I know I've said this a hundred times. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We it's not we do enough works to get to heaven. That's not what we're talking about here. Grace undergirds everything, and faith is the link between God's part and our part. This week, I want you to go read through Matthew chapter 7. I want you to go read through Matthew chapter 7. And you're going to get to a point where Jesus says something very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. And we're going to talk about how that ties into this verse next week. So I really want you to read that verse. But Jesus, in that passage, he says, the only ones that are going to heaven are those who do the will of my Father. The only ones going to heaven are those doing the will of my Father. How, how, How does that set up with someone who says, I prayed a prayer, but there's no transformation, no process taking place in their life? Jesus says that the only ones who will go to heaven are the ones who are doing the will of my Father. Those are not my words, those are Jesus. Jesus says the will of my Father. Um, Jesus said it. Obviously, obedience to the Father's will is very important to Jesus. It even has something to do, guys, it even has something to do with us getting into heaven. Jesus said it. Jesus said it, Matthew 7. And guys, obviously, in some sense, they do. And, but we have seen and we know that there is no chance that we can do anything to earn our salvation. We know that faith is the only way by which we can be saved. And we know that we are justified by faith alone. So the question, then, is how do these two go together? How do these two, if we are saved by grace through faith, but Jesus says it very, very clearly that only those who do the will of my father, and I, I think we find some reconciliation for that, particularly in this passage. Um, and I am setting this up a little bit of a cliffhanger, because that's where we're going to have to continue next week, okay? Um, it's already been like 55 minutes or something like that. So here's, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to continue to worship. we're singing a couple more songs, and, and you ain't going to get out of here without giving money, so uh, we're going to do that too, in a few minutes, and, and I'm just kidding. Um, but in all seriousness, um, if you go back to that Philippians 2 and verse 12 and 13, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I'll tell you what, just to give you a tidbit, that fear and trembling carries a lot of Old Testament richness to it. And what Paul is talking about in this passage is just so awesome and for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. Because there's awesomeness in the fact that he works for his good pleasure. Because his good pleasure will always be perfect. It will always involve what's best for you and I. It may not be what's most comfortable, but it will always involve what's best for you and I. And he works all of these and works in us. So what I want to do is we as we sing this next song and Man, as we're worshiping, I just want to challenge you guys to do something. As we're worshiping, whether it's before sermon, after sermon, whatever it is, man, reflect on these truths that we're learning and what God's Word says. Like when we read through it, like when you are singing through a song and you see a phrase and you're like, ooh, we talked about that. That's awesome. Man, it should have more richness to you, more richness for you, more, more depth in your worship and giving praises to God. So as we worship... Um, I just, uh, I want to challenge you to reflect on those things. And, um, and the last thing I'll say this, if, if you've not been born again, if you don't know what that means or want to know more, you need to know more, man, uh, you can see me after service. You can talk to Rusty, the bass player. Um, I'm sure anybody, find a member of the church, you can talk to anybody. I'm sure they'll point you to the right direction. Um, so, uh, let's pray. Uh, the band's going to come up. we will continue in worship and Uh, And then we'll be dismissed. Father, um, thank you so much that just like in salvation, at the point where we were saved, just like at that moment, it is not us who is the supreme actor in that, but Father, it is you. And thank God because I biblically left up to us, um, we would always seek darkness. We would always seek that which is not the best for us. And Father, just like at the point that we are saved, Father, you are all over that. Father, just like that you are on top of the process of which we are being saved. Father, help us not to shy away from these truths in your word. But to, um, but to dive deeply into this, because it's these truths that we often shy away from because they're difficult, those oftentimes contain some of the most richness of what you've revealed to us And, and Father, as we worship you, Father, let the word of God permeate our hearts and minds. And let it overflow into worship that is pleasant and beautiful for you. And Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I you all, go ahead and stand with me.